What is happening, everybody? Your estimable host, Jose Nino here, bringing you another wonderful installment of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined by the great Anatoly Carlin. You may have read his work on Unce Review or have followed him on Twitter at Powerful Takes. He also has a Substack titled Powerful Takes. He's an expert on Russian political affairs, geopolitics, and other forbidden topics such as psychometrics. How are things going today, Anatoly? Very good, thank you. Glad to be on the show. All right. Well, the Russo-Ukrainian conflict is still in the news, and obviously it's the biggest geopolitical development of the past decade, if not the post-Cold War era. But I would rather zoom out and focus on the broader security backdrop that took place in the aftermath of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In your view, do you believe the West took Russia's security concerns seriously after the breakup of the Soviet Union? Oh, well, I mean, I uh, hold to the uh, uh, sort of like the consensus in the dissident sphere that uh, uh, no, it did not. I mean, it's uh, well known that there were uh, verbal guarantees that uh, NATO would not expand uh, beyond the uh, into the territories of the old Warsaw Pact, and uh, that was sort of like um, uh, multiple confirmations to that effect, and that was uh, not uh, adhered to. And uh, well, I mean, to the contrary. There was an effort to uh, revolutionize uh, the um, countries that Russia uh, regarded as uh, basically not its uh, part of a, its sphere of influence, uh, that like uh, ultimately part of its own civilization at the end of the day. And uh, obviously, this uh, eventually led to the uh, sort of the consequences that we've seen today. Yeah, that makes sense because from looking at international affairs, there's always like a kind of like a turning point event that compels like great powers or aspiring great powers such as Russia to start asserting themselves on the world stage, specifically in their historical domains. At what point in post-Soviet history would you say that Russia's foreign policy elites realized that NATO was no longer some harmless defensive alliance? I mean, it was uh, obviously a progression. Because in the 1990s, uh, Russia was frankly one of the most Americanophile countries in the world. So if there had been and uh, Russian leaders were meeting the possibilities of EU membership, NATO membership, like even the early Putin was asking about that, as, as in like the 2000 and so forth. Although despite some sort of pitfalls along the way, such as the bombing of Serbia in the late 1990s and the uh, Obviously, there was a sort of progressive decline in relationships, uh, which was sort of like marked by different events, the Iraq invasion, then the uh, 2000-day Georgia crisis, then the uh, color revolution in Ukraine and the Orange Revolution, and of course, uh, 2014 and uh, the Crimea crisis. So yeah, you had a uh, sort of like a steady degradation of relations. Uh, oh yes, and of course, Libya, which uh, sort of like... Uh, I probably torpedoed any chance Medvedev had for the second term as president. And uh, yeah, that sort of um, obviously um, probably confirmed to the Kremlin that uh, the Serbia Kosovo president was sort of like not the, not like the exception, but the duel uh, pretty much. So yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the US uh, as the, well, the ringleader of NATO at the end of the day, 
increasingly came to be seen as a uh, non-agreement capable, uh, near the government's possible Russian entity, essentially. Basically, you can track this sort of like progression in the Russian attitudes with different polls, like approval ratings of NATO, which uh, have been sort of like uh, and, uh, the US in general, which have sort of like been declining uh, for pretty much the past two decades. These sort of like uh, views have obviously percolated in three elites as well. So you were one of the few people who correctly predicted that Russia would invade Ukraine. This was like months before the events of February 24th transpired. What signs made you a firm believer that Russia was going to pull the trigger on the Ukrainian question? Okay, yeah, well, I mean, I uh, encapsulated the logic uh, in uh, my February 16th post, the, uh, the gambling of the Russian lands. But to briefly summarize, there were basically four or five uh, like strong indicators. Uh, firstly, there were the two movements. So you had uh, units on the far eastern uh, military district being transferred west, which uh, has likely never happened before. So that was a major giveaway. Uh, secondly, the demands uh, that she had made of uh, NATO to basically go back to the situation before NATO expansion de facto uh, was uh, was evidently not not something that uh, the well any Western country could have sort of negotiated seriously, even had they been of a mind to. And uh, uh, the third factor uh, is that there was a good window of opportunity in terms of uh, the geopolitical conjunction. Uh, so basically, Ukrainian military power would have continued increasing relative to Russian military power, simply because Ukraine was starting from such a low base uh, in 2014. Uh, presenting a bigger and bigger threat to the Donbass over time, which uh, Russia had more or less de facto committed to defending. Uh, so this was not a very good position to be in. From an economic perspective, 2022 was better than 2014, in the sense that Russia had sort of become uh, more independent, like less integrated, less dependent on uh, integration into the Western economic sphere, as well as uh, China's uh, economic weight had greatly increased in the past eight years, and it's uh, the start of its of China's economic relationship with the U.S. had concurrently declined. So basically, the world economy in the mid 2010s was defined by so-called Chimerica, the Chinese-American trade relationship. Nowadays, it's in fast and emitting decline. Uh, so this was another sort of conjuncture that uh, was going in Russia's favor. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough, uh, presumably being even more in Russia's favor given another eight years, say 2030. But on the other hand, within those same eight years, Russia would have had another eight years of uh, very intensive Ukrainian uh, nation building on, a, on an anti-Russian foundation and increases uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Ukrainian military power. So it was ultimately sort of a trade-off and presumably it was decided that uh, 2022 was the uh, sort of optimal year to get it done with. I see. So throughout the Western corporate press, you have all these takes about Russia losing the current conflict or is about to get bogged down in an Afghanistan-style quagmire. A lot of it to me is a cope, just FYI. But overall, how would you rate Russia's military performance so far in Ukraine? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, the uh, sort of like initial... Uh ideas or hopes or whatever they were that uh, the Ukraine would uh, uh, would crumble very quickly 
to be completely unfounded uh, to the size of uh, several, not, not just some like myself, frankly, but uh, many Western military analysts as well. On the other hand, I mean, the basic facts of the matter is that uh, Ukraine is uh, fighting a country that has uh, five times its population, 10 times, more than 10 times its GDP, uh, 20 or 30 times its munition potential. Uh, someone said uh, Soviet stocks, uh, old Soviet stocks of weapons, uh, attrition, attrition away. They will basically be fighting with uh, militias, Terebarona, against uh, a very artillery heavy professional uh, force. The attrition will keep on getting worse and worse for Ukraine. So I don't think that this is something that they can uh, continue indefinitely. I mean, yes, obviously they've um, uh, sort of like uh, been fighting much more strongly than, than many expected. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that the case uh, is strong that um, if you look at the uh, sort of the casualty ratios, the addition ratios, they're not in Ukraine's favor. They seem to be something like at least uh, two to one in favor of Russia, if not maybe perhaps three to one. Again, given the demographic and industrial disparities, uh, this is not a sustainable uh, state of affairs. Now, yes, I mean, uh, of course, Ukraine is getting a, an inflow of, uh, of uh, Western munitions and armaments. Uh, but short of the West itself, moving, moving to a total mobilization economy, uh, that's not going to make a uh, sort of like a cardinal difference at the end of the day. Right now, we are seeing a decoupling, if you will, of Eastern Ukraine from the rest of the country. And what do you see as the future for Ukraine? Will it be a rump state or will Russia try to capture all of it? Well, I mean, as I said from the start, I uh, I thought that from the very start, Russia's aims were going to be maximalist. Uh, because if you're going to sort of like append the international order, uh, then you might as well go, uh, go full tilt uh, at it. So, yeah, I mean, my assessment remains pretty much the same, that I think that uh, at a minimum, uh, the territories of uh, historical Novorossia, uh, so basically the eight oblasts that constitute southeastern Ukraine, will sort of be incorporated into Russia directly. Uh, possibly satellite Ukraine, uh, like the areas around Kiev, although that's sort of like more like 50-50. Uh, perhaps there will be a dump state in uh, in the west of the country, uh, around Galicia. But yeah, I mean that's sort of like my uh, sort of uh, that was my initial guess uh, and assessment uh, back in February, and it remains the same today. Do you see external actors like Poland or other European countries try to carve out Ukraine like a jack o' lantern or? Will whatever remains of Ukraine just remain like a neutral buffer state? Uh, yes, quite possibly. I mean, there's uh, there's been some talk of uh, of uh, Poland sending in troops uh, into Western Ukraine, and uh, perhaps yeah, perhaps there'll be some sort of like a line at which. Uh, but I mean, I'm not. Uh, there's been a lot of integration of of, of Ukraine into Ukrainian institutions into Pol- with Polish ones, uh, where basically like uh, a lot of. There was at least the law in which Polish citizens enjoy the same uh, sort of like rights and privileges in in the Ukraine now as Ukrainians do in Poland. So, uh, so yeah, and obviously the Poles and Ukrainians do have their sort of like historical issues around uh, World War II massacres and so forth. But 
they've sort of been very much sidelined, obviously, for obvious reasons in the past few months. So yes, I, I can certainly see uh, any like a, a dump west in Ukraine assaulting uh, the Polish sphere of influence in a, in a like a very decisive way. That's a possibility, although not not a certainty, obviously. Okay, on a side note, one of the most fascinating aspects of this conflict has been Russia's use of Chechens as like shock troops, if you will. For those unaware, the Russian Federation had to wage several conflicts in the mid-1990s, well into the early 2000s against Chechen separatists. And since then, that ethnic group has more or less been pacified. But specifically, what kind of programs has the Russian government used to assimilate and integrate Chechens into the Russian armed forces and into a broader Russian society? Well, I mean, Chechnya is basically has its own sort of like uh, political structure that's, uh, that has uh, Ramzan Kadyrov at uh, the head. And 80% of its uh, budget is subsidized from the Russian Federal Center. So uh, pretty much Russia just uh, pays them, pays them off for loyalty, which I suppose is uh, less uh, costly than uh, like waging a, a direct anti-partisan, uh, anti-guerrilla war against them indefinitely. I mean, I would uh, probably wouldn't sort of uh, exaggerate the role of, uh, of uh, the Kadyrovce in, uh, in uh, Ukraine. I mean, obviously, yes, they do take an active part in the fighting, uh, but um, uh, at the end of the day, they're very good at PR, uh, so they they know how to upload uh, uh, videos on TikTok and get views and so forth. But uh, really, the uh, real contribution and the real sort of like uh, additional force that uh, that sort of like dancing down the Ukrainians is ultimately the artillery forces. Uh, that's the most important component, if I'm on some Hmm. Okay, got it. Yeah. So now let's go to more kind of like generic political analysis, because most people in the West are accustomed to the left-right political axis, but most of the world is not like that. And from my bird's eye view, I've noticed that Russia does have some facets of that dynamic, but it doesn't really operate on a one-to-one basis like the West. So in the context of like Russian politics, where would you say that you land on the political spectrum? Well, I mean, I don't think that, uh, that speaking about myself is sort of like uh, like interesting. I mean, I'm pretty much uh, so several years ago I identified as a Russian nationalist, uh, but since then Russian nationalism has sort of like become uh, its main tenets at any rate have sort of become normalized uh, by by Putin uh, under the Putin regime. So uh, Russians were written as the state forming people uh, of the Russian Federation in the Constitution. You had uh, basically uh, the um, Kremlin's adopted the Russian nationalist uh, program enunciated by people like Ivan Ilyin and Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, that uh, Russian civilization uh, is sort of like an organic unity of uh, the, the Russian pe- main three Russian peoples, uh, the uh, Russians, Belarusians, and Ukrainians. Uh, so there was uh, there was that there was a decriminalization of uh, hate speech laws of Article 282 a couple of years ago. So pretty much all of the polit- main political demands of Russian nationalism have been fulfilled. So increasingly, the people who like really identify as nationalists in a sort of like a position-meaning sense 
uh, they've sort of like been marginalized uh, and uh, to the ghettos of politics, essentially. Uh, so in the current political uh, conjuncture, there's a much like a uh, like a uh, Putinist Vatnik uh, Nomi who just wants to drill. Uh-huh. Well, what, what do you mean by Vatnik? Can you tell my audience about that expression? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, the, it's basically a sort of like a um, Soviet either clothing accoutrement, uh, like a, a, a jacket, a cheap jacket, which was sort of like associated with like a, a lower class fellows, convicts and so forth. Uh, and uh, uh, so people who uh, were like pro-Putin several years ago, they uh, acquired this moniker, especially from Ukrainians, that they were uh, Vatniks, that they wanted to attack Crimea. So basically, it's the same as that next in the US. And over time, it uh, instead became appropriated uh, and to some extent adopted by uh, the people they were, were called Vatniks as their own. And so it's no longer a term of abuse, uh, but something that uh, some people are perfectly happy to identify with. Possibly something similar will, will happen with uh, the term orcs. Yeah, I've actually seen that term thrown around a lot too on Twitter, especially like on Ukrainian Twitter, anytime I lurk there with regards to Russia. Now, in terms of the pro-war sentiments in Russia, like that are in favor of like the special military operation, what political constituency in Russia would you say is the most enthusiastic about it? Uh, it's mainly a difference uh, between age groups. So, I mean, like if you just... Uh, sample opinion polls and you typically get 80% support for uh, for the war amongst uh, boomers and uh, some more like 50% amongst uh, young people. Uh, more religious people are more likely to support it, like the so orthodox relative to atheists, for instance. There's no major difference between uh, socioeconomic status or between sexes or even between education. I mean, the, the highly educated are somewhat less likely to support it, but not by, uh, by a big margin that uh, some might have expected. Are there any disparities when it comes to like religion, whether it's like Muslim Chechens or like Muslim Tatars and other groups, or are they generally on board as well? Oh, yeah, they're generally on board as well. Uh, so... Uh, uh, well, I mean, the one opinion poll I've seen, which had a religious breakdown, it had about 75% among support amongst Orthodox and, uh, uh, and Buddhists, uh, Buddhists uh, although the Buddhist sample was very low, and around 55% amongst Muslims and something like 45% amongst uh, atheists mm. and non-religious, which some stands to reason. All, all very interesting. Now, I kind of wish you focus to the West reaction, which has been pretty hysterical. So which grouping of nations do you believe has been most hostile towards Russia in this period? The Anglosphere, continental Europe, or the United States? Oh, I mean, I would say that uh, the U.S., uh, relative to pre-war expectations, the U.S., if anything, has underreacted uh, relative to what uh, some people would have been expecting. And the continental sub overreacted. Uh, although uh, that's sort of like uh, relative to the baseline, uh, that uh, according to which sort of like um, the, uh, I mean, basically the US is, uh, uh, is sort of like, uh, it's not its, con- it's not, it's not its con- continent, it has to worry about East Asia. 
Uh, and if anything, you get, you get the impression uh, that if anything, it's just somewhat annoyed that uh, it's sort of like uh, it's a, it's had a, it's it's a, it's attention done away uh, temporarily on account of this. But on a sort of a global scale, uh, obviously the main division is between the West as a whole and the uh, the West or the Third World, which is so basically China, India, and so forth. I mean, basically one of uh, my Indian acquaintances uh, remarked that. Uh, uh, if, uh, if if you sort of like an alien was to uh, glance on the planet, then he'd uh, get the impression that it was some kind of race war uh, between the uh, people huh. of color and, uh, and uh, the whites uh, as the the gods who they support not with like the only uh, like pretty much the exceptions made the rules in this case. So like some like Serbia pretty much the only uh, production and policy for uh, understandable historical reasons. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean that's sort of like the main division, and uh, again, that sort of stands to reason uh, because uh, yeah, the West has uh, uh, like a unified information environment and uh, a more reason to care about it, uh, whereas the third world they uh, sort of like more attuned to uh, what they see as uh, instances of Western hypocrisy and selectiveness. I mean, obviously, the Chinese know about Taiwan. They remember how the U.S. bombed their embassy in Beijing in, uh, uh, in 1999. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they don't have any any particular reason to uh, support uh, Ukraine, or uh, like even to the extent that they don't support Russia. I mean, they don't really have a reason to care very deeply about uh, what happens uh, as the guards, what they ultimately see as a dispute amongst uh, whites. So, which. Sort of, uh, makes sense, I suppose. Do you see Russia ever being able to improve relations with countries like Poland, which have been at loggerheads with the EU as well? I'm pretty skeptical uh, because at the end of the day, Poland would rather, uh, I mean, for it has understandable historical promise relating to sort of like the extinguishment of its independence. That, uh, the late uh, 18th century at the hands of, well, Russia, uh, as well as Austria and, and Russia. Uh, but uh, Russia being sort of like the main perceived threat, uh, if, if an unrealistic one, uh, and from my perspective, because I mean, yeah, I mean, all Russian, even Russian nationalists, I mean, uh, nobody but the crazies, uh, nobody wants to go into Poland. I mean, that's a, sort of like a um, absolutely marginal position. The Polish position is uh, which which is highly suspicious is uh, is understandable uh, at the end of the day, and it's uh, I suppose it's not unreasonable for them to want to maintain a uh, buffer state in the form of uh, Ukraine and Belarus, preferably aligned with them, because yeah, I mean, uh, I mean ultimately a lot of uh, Poles uh, seem to fantasize about a uh, sort of like a uh, uh, intermarium uh, in which sort of like they integrate with the Baltics and. Uh, Ukraine and even Belarus, and not just sort of uh, like uh, either own power block uh, comparable in population and so forth uh, with uh, with Russia, which also allows them to carry their own weight uh, relative to the EU countries. Um, but I don't really see that as a very realistic prospect at the end of the day, uh, because yeah, I mean they're pretty much tied into the Western information infrastructure. They're, they're totally economically integrated, uh, highly dependent on the. Uh, EU transfers. So yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, pretty skeptical that uh, that um, uh, the sort of like vision can be accomplished. 
And yeah, I mean, obviously the countries within the zone do have their own historical issues with each other as well. Uh, so Hungary and uh, Poland in particular have a sort of like a, had a wedge in between them over, over the Ukraine because, uh, I mean, Hungary likes Ukraine Ukraine a lot less than Poland uh, in, and that's related to the status of the Hungarian minority in, the, in Ukraine. Uh, at the end of the day, even if sort of Russia was to vanish off the maps, the historical issues that existed between Ukraine and Poland might very well resurrect themselves again. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty skeptical about the, uh, the prospects of any such intermarrying vision, which which is sort of like a big thing amongst not just Poles, but also amongst uh, Azov-type uh, uh, Ukrainian nationalists, like uh, Alena Siminyaka, that's like the spokeswoman of Azov. Let's go to like Russia's potential allies and strategic partners outside of China and India. What countries do you expect Russia to start bolstering ties with after the dust settles from this conflict? Well, I mean, the third world as a whole, and uh, uh, those uh, parts of the Western countries which are less parts of the core West, such as South Korea, for instance, uh, possibly the mad countries, Italy and so forth, because, I mean, they are economically weaker, relatively weak, and with this sort of like the global economic conjuncture, we might see a, uh, like, uh, problems with, uh, uh, with like, the sovereign debt in countries like, like the Higgs, again, uh, in, the, in the sort of, like, medium-term future. So, yeah, I mean, probably, uh, uh, probably, like, the peripheral countries of the West and the third world as a whole, I mean, Latin America is far away. Africa is just very poor. So there's, and it's not complementary. I mean, it's a resource export of issues also. A resource export and not, not much, not much synergies to be had there. Uh, India is an interesting, is a good partner, although it's, uh, doesn't really have much in the way of high technologies. At the end of the day, it's only China that's uh, by far the most critical partner. If, uh, the, the relationship with, with China, which is very complementary, can be sustained uh, because, uh, yeah, I mean, China is uh, 10 times larger than Russia. It has the economies of scale to basically replicate a uh, self-sustained uh, high-tech industrial economy in a way that Russia can attempt to, but uh, can't really do uh, to the full extent. It's really China that's the uh, that's most critical partner, and that was the case in the very beginning. And I allow that reason that uh, what is happening now didn't happen back in 2014 simply was mainly uh, on account of uh, the consideration of the China factor that uh, China back then was more than it is today and it was more highly integrated with the US eight years ago. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm actually originally from Venezuela and Russia and Venezuela have been solid strategic partners starting with the regime of Hugo Chavez well into the present. So you don't really see much prospect for heightened cooperation between the two countries after this conflict is done? Well, I mean, I mean uh, the, I'm, I'm sure there will be. Uh, but uh, I mean, Venezuela is an oil exporter, uh, although they sort of like mismanaged the PDVSA, as I understand. So uh, the yeah. oil exports have uh, collapsed. Um, but uh, uh, so yeah, I mean perhaps uh, Boston Yachts will transfer some sort of I don't know technical expertise, although it's not a very well-run company uh, itself. But yeah, I mean you could have do some of that. You could do some more sort of like uh, military technical transfers. 
you fought well clashes the mean high and the Venezuela goes in another armaments buying speed. I mean, yeah, I mean, just given the banal uh, sort of like limited scale of the Venezuelan, Venezuelan economy, I mean, it's not going to be sort of like a a, a significant factor in, in the big picture. Would you say overall that Russia is going to be pivoting eastward in terms of its grand strategy and economic relations with international actors? Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think that it's uh, quite possible that the uh, quite likely uh, that the current fishes are here for the long haul, because the war is going to keep on going for at least several more months, in my opinion. And uh, uh, any results of it are not going to be recognized for the foreseeable future. I mean, look, uh, like to give some historical precedents that, uh, like after the Islamic Revolution in Iran, well, I mean, the U.S. still has recognized it and uh, when uh, uh, after the Soviet Union was announced uh, was was declared uh, it took several years on average about five ten years for Western countries to recognize uh, the new reality so I mean this sort of gives you an uh, one idea of the time scales involved for any potential normalization of relationships uh, that's probably at least five to ten years. Uh, that's a very long time in terms of uh, industrial economic planning. Uh, so yes, I mean I fully expect uh, like uh, economic ties to be very much uh, reorientated uh, towards uh, close integration with uh, with China and with Asia in general. Yeah, before we could talk about like, foreign policy or power production abroad, obviously a country has to have its house in order, if you will. What would you say are the biggest domestic challenges that Russia will have to confront in the 21st century and beyond? So um, probably if you can uh, sort of like cluster it into several bits, I think that uh, uh, the, um, I mean, the first and the most obvious challenge is, of course, uh, converging to developed countries, uh, developed country uh, economic development levels, uh, for which the share needs to update its productivity. In a way, the, these events have made it more difficult in, in one sense, in that the uh, sort of like linkages with uh, Western Europe have been sort of like uh, driven apart. On the other hand, uh, uh, a lot of uh, there's much less scope for uh, offshoring uh, uh, money from Russia uh, in, the, in the new conjunction. I mean, a lot of these technologies can, in any case, be uh, imported to other avenues. So, uh, I mean, that's that probably compensates this to a large degree. Uh, but yeah, I mean, economic development would be one one big factor. Another big challenge would be avoiding uh, avoiding the sort of like world virus that uh, sort of has infected the West and this uh, damaging its competitiveness. Well, I mean, climate change benefits Russia, so it's not a challenge. If anything, it's a, it's a benefit. And uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the speculations that if uh, the capabilities of uh, AI continue to scale uh, linearly with the amount of uh, uh, resources parameters devoted to them, uh, then they could, uh, like, you could have uh, an AI take off sooner than many others project. Uh, but that's entirely speculative and probably not something that uh, policymakers should sort of like unduly concern themselves with. Uh, at this moment in time, version one's at any rate. All right. This is a good place to bookmark this conversation. Anatoly, 
Thank you so much for coming on. And please tell my audience where they can find your work. As you pointed out, I uh, tweeted powerful takes and I have a Substack blog at, uh, at acarlian.substack.com. Um, I'll be I'm covering the Ukrainian conflict, geopolitics as a whole, and uh, various other issues. Might be of interest. Awesome. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.